Hey, welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast, the fastest growing podcast in women's health. Today's Monday, July 11th, 2022. Today and next week, my guest is my dad. Dr. Jacob Fox, or Jack Fox, has been my dad for most of his life and all of mine. He is also a neurologist who practiced in Chicago for close to 50 years before retiring a few years ago. He was a clinical neurologist and also professor and chair of the Department of Neurology at Rush Medical Center in Chicago for about 25 years. In the academic neurology world, he is best known as an award-winning teacher and an expert in dementia and Alzheimer's disease. In the outside world, he's a world-famous comedian, runner, social drinker, and overall awesome person. And he is definitely what we call old school. This interview was done using my podcast equipment and his flip phone. Now, I love my dad, but since I'm his son, you might think I'm biased. However, after this week and next week's podcast, I'm guessing you're going to love him too, and will probably want him to start his own podcast, which won't happen. Today, my dad and I talk about his bird's eye view of his career in medicine in general over the past 50 years, and next week, we're going to talk about his specialty, neurology, and more specifically, memory loss, neurocognitive decline, and dementia. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, Dr. Jacob Fox. Dad, how are you this morning? Nady, I'm terrific. So I'm going to ask, this is your first time podcasting, I assume? It is. I'm not even sure I know what a podcast is, but uh, it sounds like it's something that may have some value. <laughs> and I was thinking this morning, you are probably the first person ever to be invited as a guest on this podcast and the Oprah Winfrey Show. <laughs> well, that's, I don't know. I, I guess I should be flattered. <laughs> You, when were you on Oprah? It was, it was well, in the 80s? It was a while ago, right? Oh, it was a long time ago. I presume it was the 80s. And really, the, the, the people who were on Oprah were or was the wife of a patient of mine and his daughter. And um, I think Oprah wanted to interview them and find out what it was like living with somebody who had significant memory problems. And for some reason, she also decided that it would be worthwhile having the patient's doctor there uh, since at least at that time, I don't know what she does now, she was recording in Chicago. And so it was quite easy for me to participate. <laughs> what was it like meeting her? Because this was early in her career. She wasn't the huge national sensation then that she is now. She seemed like a nice lady. I, you know, at least for me, I, uh, it, it didn't have much effect on me one way or the other. I, I really just was trying to accommodate my patient's family. I remember, as I think I've told you, they had beforehand, they said, because it was on television, they said, well, you want to be made up. And I said, no, I'm satisfied with whatever I've got. And to which the makeup artist said, well, you could use it. But I still 
uh, didn't do it. And well, <laughs> so everybody got what, what I heard. I, I did not offer you to get made up for the podcast, but, um, you know, I guess it's fine since it's all audio. Who's going to know? <laughs> I Absolutely. And I look no worse than usual. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, even though you don't exactly know what's going on here or what this oh, is, okay. what, what goes on with podcasts. But it's, uh, as you as you told me, you've done radio interviews and spoken publicly. So this is definitely in your wheelhouse. And you and I have spoken before, so we're comfortable with each other. Okay, I'm ready. So I want I wanted to start first, get your perspective just as someone who's, uh, so to speak, been around the block in the world of medicine. Um, you were recently retired from clinical medicine. So congratulations. And thank you. you so you've been doing it a long time. And I, I'm curious if you could, you know, I'm going to ask you some questions about, you know, what it was like then versus now, you know, things that have changed. Pick your brain a little bit about uh, the world of medicine. I was born in 1942 and I graduated medical school in 1967. He had one year of general medical internship. And since then, 1968, I've been a neurologist. In training, I was in the military for two years, and I've practiced neurology since then. So obviously, my my knowledge is more acute about the impact of medicine on neurology than it is everything else. But I certainly have my views on medicine. What prompted you to go to medical school in the first place? I, I'm embarrassed to say that I never thought of anything different. My father was a doctor. My sister, who unfortunately has passed away, wanted to be a doctor. I had uncles and cousins and others that were going to be doctors, and I honestly never thought about it. It just was assumed by me and by other people. And how did you decide neurology specifically? When I was a medical student, as you know, the first, the last two years are spent seeing patients, and I uh, had in those days, the neurology rotation was what was called elective, meaning you didn't have to do it, but I did choose to do it. I don't remember exactly why, but I found those patients particularly interesting. I wasn't interested in anything that involved surgery. I consider myself a substantial klutz, and I would never <laughs> have wanted to do that. I wouldn't have enjoyed it, and so therefore, it had to be something mental, what everybody else referred to as the swamis. And so you, when you think about it, it's internal medicine, pediatrics, psychiatry, neurology, dermatology. And amongst those all, I, I like neurology the best. And I certainly have not regretted it. And I can say what I say all the time to medical students and people who come to interview. I honestly don't think I've met a neurologist who regretted his or her choice in that specialty. That's interesting. It's also interesting because your father was an ophthalmologist, which is a surgical field, right? So he was a, a surgeon and your sister, a dermatologist, which is sort of both depends on how you look at it. But certainly there's, uh, you don't want to be a klutz if you're a dermatologist because you're, you know, cutting things and sewing things. That's true. Uh, unfortunately, I have the motor skills that I have. And therefore, I wouldn't want to be in a position where a very fine, slight changes in my movements would could have a detrimental effect on a patient. And of course, you know that the, like everything else in life, the things that you tend not to be that good at 
are usually things that you're not terribly interested in. And since I never felt that manual skills were my long suit, I never was very interested in surgery or anything that involved surgery. When you finished training, you originally started in private practice, correct? Sort of. It was always, I was always partly academic. Earlier in my career, I would say it was more private practice. And later in my career, it was more academic. But I think that was because as time went on, particularly in the 80s, as cognitive decline, mental decline, Alzheimer's disease became more identified and understood, It was a big demand for academic programs that specialized in Alzheimer's disease. And where I was at Rush Medical School, I was the guy who did it. And so therefore, basically, I changed my practice from a private practice into an academic practice. And then I just got involved in academic life in general. But it wasn't, I'd say, an overt decision on my part. It's just it depended on what was being, what was going on in the community of patients. And can you just explain what what would be the sort of day-to-day or practical difference between switching or, you know, sort of transitioning from more private practice to more academic? I mean, like for our listeners, like what, what would that even mean? Well, you know, at least for me, it really didn't make that much difference. I think that when you're in, a, and, and, and now, in fact, I don't think it makes that much difference at all because there's no extra money in the system. And therefore, people, doctors and academics still have to support themselves. And most doctors and academics are going to support themselves by seeing patients. Now, if you happen to be somebody who is funded in research. If you have a grant from the National Institute of Health that is paying for, let's say, half of your salary, that would mean that half of the time is being paid for for already. I'm not sure I really felt all that much difference Mm -hmm. between the two. I saw the same kind of patients and did the same kind of things. Once we developed a program in Alzheimer's, I had a lot more help than I had before. We had nurses, we had social workers, Uh, And they were very helpful. I mean, a lot of things that I might have had to do or explain or try to explain sometimes ineffectively in private practice, the social workers and the nurses were able to do a better job. But I I never felt all that much different. And was it different in terms of, you know, residents or medical students or were they also seeing patients with you and rounding with you when you were uh, originally more private compared to academic? I was fortunate that even when I was in private practice, I had residents with me a a lot of time. I'd say when I became academic in neurology, there was even more so. And and a lot of the residents then were neurology residents as opposed to when I was in private practice in a community hospital with family practice residents or medical residents. Students were clearly more with me when I was uh, academic in the medical school, but at least for myself, I always, always was interested in teaching. And as you know, because we've talked about it, I, I feel that we physicians who are participating in teaching are really, we're the luckiest. We have the most fun. We're always dealing with these smart young people. We have to explain ourselves. 
we can't just rely on people saying, you know, taking our word for it. And I think that it makes it more challenging, more interesting. And I think the other thing about the academics is the, the most difficult patients tend through the pipeline to end up at the academic medical center. So therefore, you see particularly large number of difficult patients, though in private practice, I also saw many very difficult patients. By difficult, you mean you mean sort of intellectually, not personality-wise? Absolutely. Uh, correct. Right. Uh, intellectually, what's wrong with them? Was, uh, the, the, the community hospital has done everything they can. They don't know what's wrong. Okay, we're going to send you to the medical school. Let's see if they can figure it out. And that's the way it would work. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you about teaching because I know from, you know, I've over the years got to meet some of your medical students or residents, certainly not the majority of them, but but a fair number of them. And all of them have always said several things about you. One is your your great ability um, to go out and drink with them. Uh, and number two is obviously your 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 keen sense of humor. But they always, always, always mentioned that you are the best teacher that they had in medical school. Well, it's very sweet of them. And I remember they may have said they had something else to somebody else's son if they happened to meet them. You know, so you can't you can't be sure about that. But, but listen, you know something? You tend to be best in the things you enjoy. I mean, if you enjoy doing something, you're much more likely to do a good job than if you don't enjoy doing something. I think everybody knows that intuitively. I enjoy teaching. I enjoy being with the young people. And so, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to do my best. Yeah. And I think that's actually one of the interesting things because, you know, sometimes when either in hospitals or certainly in any industry, when you try to divide work, let's say evenly, you end up you know, if I said, all right, you know, you're going to teach on Monday, you're going to teach on Tuesday, you're going to teach on Wednesday. Those people don't always enjoy it in the same amount. And you end up having people doing things that they don't want to do and they don't enjoy doing, even though it's maybe equitable. Uh, whereas you can have a system where you try to have people do what they like to do. Um, you were a leader, you were the you know chair of the department, you know, forever. Did you think about it in that sensing, all right, I want my people who love to teach and are good at teaching, I'm going to have them teach and the people who love being in a lab, I'm going to stick them in a lab and everyone's happy. Absolutely. I thought about it, though, it was considerably easier than it might sound because there was a self-selection process. Generally, people who ended up in academics were people who generally enjoy teaching. Obviously, there is exceptions to that. Uh, the, in modern the medical schools, like every place else, there's all these evaluations that I would look at them. I was, we were fortunate. Almost everybody got a very good evaluation. In the rare circumstance where somebody was said not to be a very effective teacher, at least my approach would be, I'd talk to them and say, hey, you know, uh, you're, you're doing something that isn't helping the students and the residents, you know, pick up the pace. Well, yeah, I didn't, have, I didn't go into specifics. I don't know. I'm sure there's a whole skill in teaching, but I surely don't know what it is. And they almost invariably did. And if they didn't, I wouldn't have them teach anymore. I just have them see patients without uh, students and residents. I, but they, fortunately for me, there was a very infrequent occurrence. And and you were at the same place pretty much your entire career at Rush in Chicago. I, I was at Rush all the time. I was after I got out of the army. And I, you know, I, as I said, I was in for a, a decade or maybe more, I was also in a community hospital practice. And that's basically because I had 
people like you who I had to send to school and I needed more money. And so therefore, it was really a pretty simple calculation. And uh, but but I don't think there's as great a discrepancy between in the compensation that people in academics get now compared to private. There certainly is some difference, but it's not as great as it used to be because uh, the people in academics, once again, they have to see patients, you know, and the patients pay the same in the medical school as they do in private practice. So it, it it's not as big a deal anymore. Did you intentionally stay at the same place or did it just sort of fall out that way? Because I think it's unusual for people to stay in academic medicine in the same place their whole career. Well, I, my, I wasn't a famous researcher. It's not like I was getting called from Harvard or Stanford. Hey, you know, you're a researcher, you're going to win a Nobel Prize, come to move to Boston or move to wherever Stanford is. That's not what I did. I saw patients. And so therefore, you know, the people in Chicago knew about me, but, you know, I was what I was and I enjoyed where I was. So I never actively sought out another, uh, some other place to practice. I enjoyed what I was doing. And, you know, the people in town, I mean, they knew what I was and they knew I was happy. So it wasn't, it wasn't a very big deal. Again, I think for people who had, the people in my department who moved were people who had high level research programs where what they did was known and people wanted to bring them to join a different program. That's, that's where it occurred. Right. And how did, how did you survive as a chair of the same department for so many years? What was it? 25 plus years that you were the chair? 25 plus. Yes. 25 plus. A, how did you survive like physically? How did you get through that? And B, how did you, you know, succeed that that's very unusual for someone to be the chair of the same department for that long without someone just getting sick of them and throwing them out a window? Well, Fortunately, you're my son, so you're nice enough to say I succeeded, and I, I happen to agree with you as a matter of fact. As far as I, you know, I, I, I didn't look at what I did as being any different than being a doctor. When the people who worked for me, I had on rare occasions, but they knew would call me boss or something. I said, forget about this boss business. You know, we're all doctors. We're all same patients. And, you know, there's there is a, there has to be an administrative superstructure here. But we're, we're pretty much all the same. I didn't find it physically taxing when I whether I was in private practice or an academic practice. I would get up early in the morning and I would exercise and I'd always leave the house by six o'clock because I wanted to avoid traffic. I, I didn't find it demanding in that sense. The thing that I had that really helped me was that people trusted me which is the key thing. I, I was very, very good at, re, at recruiting. I started out, I think, when I became chairman with maybe a dozen neurologists. And by the time I finished, I had 50 neurologists. And I, I was good at recruiting, but I think the basic, and if you're good at recruiting, that means you recruit very good people. That means you have a good department. It all builds on itself. And, uh, and I think the reason why I was successful at recruiting was People trusted me. And, and the fact is that they correct to trust me because you could trust me. If I said I was going to do this for you, I did that for you. And if I said I wasn't going to do it, I said I'm not going to do that for you. And so, you know, the work got around that whatever deal they made with me when they came was the deal that they were going to get. 
and there was it. And I think there was, to me, there was the key to my success, if assuming I was successful. And again, since people trusted me, I was able to recruit excellent people. And obviously, if you have a department with 50 neurologists, how good any individual neurologist is, isn't what it's all about. It's how good everybody is collectively. And, and we collectively have great doctors. It's amazing. So I, I wanted to ask you just, you know, perspective, like high level. If you look at the course of your career, what would you say are either the single or some of the biggest differences in medicine? You could be specific about neurology if you want, or medicine in general, from when you started to now. For sure. Let's pick neurology because I know that best. As far as diagnosis and treatment, and if you're talking over a 45-year career, diagnosis and treatment improved dramatically. Start with diagnosis. When I started in practice, there was no CAT scanning and there was no MRI. And so the availability of those techniques made your ability to have a very specific diagnosis much better. But one of the things I try and point out to our trainees, ultimately, that's not what made a difference. The difference for the patient, let's say with multiple sclerosis, in 1971, when I finished my uh, army service, and right now, 22, okay, it's easier to make a very specific diagnosis of multiple sclerosis using MRI, but the real difference is we just have much better treatments. When I think of some of the big time illnesses in neurology, multiple sclerosis, stroke, Parkinson's disease, the big change is better treatments. And one of the sad, sad facts is that for cognitive decline or the dementia, there isn't a very good treatment. And you can say anything you want about the cure we give to those patients. Ultimately, as far as treating them specifically, we haven't succeeded like we've succeeded in the other things. And that's what has made neurology better and better and better. It's pretty much as simple as that. As far as the you know, collective health system and stuff like that, you know, I can't say I ever spent much time thinking about all that. I, you know, that's, I have, since I was chairman for so many years, I always dealt with you know, the upper levels, the president and the dean and stuff like that. And to tell you the truth, I felt sorry for them. They had to worry, they had to worry about that stuff. And I, at where I was at Rush, Rush, they asked me to be the provost at one time. That's the guy who's sort of the head of the whole academic program. I quit after two years. I couldn't stand it. All we did was go to meetings. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't anything in particular. You know, I, I, I didn't like that. I wanted to see patients. So I don't have, I'm, I'm not sure I'm the right person to give you the big picture. I can give you the picture as far as the patients that got better diagnosis and they got better treatment. And listen, it's what uh, being doctors is all about. How about the trainees, the medical students or the residents over the years? Have you noticed a change? They've been smart all along. You know, I, every now and then you'd have one of the old geezers like me, but I wasn't one to say, oh, they're not as good as they were and blah, 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 blah. And I remember I was always the one who would say, oh, you're so full of it. They're just <laughs> as good as we were. No question about it. 
you know, yeah. we happen to know more because we've been doing it for 30 years, but they're just as good as we are, just as ambitious. The huge difference is now half of them are women. Right. In, instead of when I was, you know, and so that's the difference. But other than that, they're, they're great. I'm always impressed how smart <laughs> med they're students smart, are. I mean, I was like, smart it, people. It, yeah, mo most of the people in medicine now who have been doing well always say, my God, I'd never get into medical school if I applied now. If I, you know, with the scores I had, forget it. They'd throw me out immediately because uh, they're just so super smart. I think that there are definite different, you know, like pressures on them or expectations of them that maybe you had or maybe I had, you know, sort of over the years. Um, but certainly the caliber of people going into medicine is is amazing. It's really, it's, um, it's, uh, it, it gives us all hope. <laughs> Obviously, there's good people. They're, they're, listen, they're great. And, but, you know, I, I personally disagree with you as far as the expectations and stuff like that. I think we doctors always had very demanding expectations of the people who were joining us. I mean, would you ever, you know, I, when my residents were finished and, you know, they wanted to talk to me and I'd say, well, I want you to know the final, the final way you'll know that I think that you're good is when I send you patients. Now that you, you have to be good enough that I'm going to send you a patient and good enough that I would send somebody in my family to you. It's, it's that, that's the marker. And all these other things, if they haven't reached that level, then we've failed. But the fact is they do reach that level. You know, it's, it's interesting. A lot of doctors, let's say your generation, whatever, whatever that means, were very old. Just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, right. we're that's very, what it means yeah have been very discouraging to others to go into medicine like i know when i was thinking about medical school a lot of people your contemporaries would be like oh don't do it it's horrible it's this it's that but you were always extremely encouraging i don't mean just to me as your son like you know to follow your own path but just in general you were always very positive on medicine and being a doctor well i think those people were completely wrong mm -hmm. There are things now that are less attractive about being a doctor than there were when I started, particularly all the record keeping and all that sort of stuff, which I never enjoyed doing. But OK, so that's so not, nothing is perfect. But the question is, what's going on in the rest of the world? Where does being a doctor rank compared to being something else? And the fact is, ultimately. The bottom line about being a doctor is you're taking care of patients. And how could anybody say that that's not a terrific way to spend your life? I'm not saying that there aren't other equivalently terrific ways to spend your life, but that's a terrific way to spend your life, you know. And so these other things are annoyances. They don't they don't get to the basics of what being a doctor is all about. And that's that's my feeling. And I think that those people, my contemporaries, the old actors who would say, oh, it's not the same as it used to be. Of course, nothing is the same as it used to be, but uh, it's still it's great. It, it's, it's it's there's nothing very complicated about it. So you would be as encouraging now as you were, you know, 30 years ago when I was deciding. Absolutely. If my any of my grandchildren want to go into medicine, I'll tell them, boy, you're making it's great. I, I think you're you're making the right decision. I mean, my great grandchildren, though they're a little bit young to think be thinking about that. <laughs> but I, I mean, you know, it's I think 
I think that's a, a great way to spend your life. That's the only great way to spend your life. Not that if you don't go into medicine, you're somehow failing. That's not true at all. But if it's something that, that you know, grabs you, that's a great way to spend your life. Uh, you know, it, it has an impact on, you know, as far as family time and stuff like that. But the, a, a lot of those things, I believe, are self-imposed. My, the thing I always think about is when I was an intern, the whole year I was an intern, maybe I stayed up all night once or twice where I had guys who were with me who stayed up all night every other night. And they were psychotic by the end. But they, they didn't. They, I know that they didn't really have to do it. They just, you know, they were so anxious about everything that they couldn't just do what they had to do and that's it. So I think a lot of these things are self-imposed and a lot of the things that doctors complain about now are self-imposed. And I, I don't, I think, like I said, being a doctor is a great way to spend your life. What advice would you give to one of your grandkids who came to you saying, I want to go into medicine other than you would support it? I'd say, the, say that's a great idea, you know, and, you know, you have to, unfortunately, you have to get into medical school. And that's the, that's the limiting factor. Well, listen, when I, for instance, I, I meet with all the new M3s, it's the third year medical students, and their first, the first day of neurology, and I have an hour with them if I'm in town. And, you know, we talk about a couple of cases, and I always say the same thing. And, you know, and something, an issue that always comes up, what do you think about my going into this area? You know, OB-GYN, whatever it is. And my, I always say the same thing. The big decision has already been made. You're a doctor. Doctors tend to be smart, ambitious people. Smart, ambitious people tend to like what they're doing if it's interesting. Medicine is interesting. And therefore, whatever you decide to do, you're going to be interested in and you're going to enjoy it. I, I, I believe that. I don't think the, the decision, and it's your decision to go into OB-GYN, my decision to go into neurology, your brother David's decision to go into general internal medicine. I think we're all equivalently happy. I was and the two of you are and what you do and satisfied with it. And so I don't think it's a, a very big deal. And you're sort of attracted for whatever reasons there are to whatever specific things you do. Mm -hmm. Do you have any regrets going through medicine long? Like if you could change something about your career over time, is there something you would have done differently? I'm embarrassed to say that I don't. Why are you I embarrassed to say that? That's, you should be well, proud I mean, to it, say there's that. A, there's an element of self-satisfaction in that. In other words, it implies that, well, gee, you know, everybody can do better than they did. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, I'm sure there are things that I could have done better. My problem is I don't know what they were, <laughs> you know, and therefore it's not, uh, you know, somebody would come up to me and say, gee, you were terrible at this or terrible at that. And I would probably regret that I wasn't better at it. But, uh, you know, people don't tell you stuff like that. <laughs> Yeah. You're definitely, yeah, that's not your personality to think about those things. What what do you what do you miss most now that you're, you know, retired? I miss taking care of patients and teaching. Those were the two things that I really enjoyed doing. Taking care of patients and teaching. And I uh, again I was lucky in my whole career. I did both of those things all the time. I'm not saying that every single patient I saw I had a 
resident or a student with me, though I can say the vast majority, that's probably true, though not in the office. When you're seeing patients in the office, it's much more difficult for the residents and students to participate. But those are the two things that I enjoyed very, very much. The other thing I enjoyed is once you figure out who you can ask when you have a question. It's very, I had a couple of guys, if I had a muscle problem they didn't know about, I'd call this guy, I think it was a guy up at Mayo's, and if I had a nerve problem, I'd call, I don't know, in other words, you, and, and those people tend to be terrific people, you talk about them to them, they're friendly, they're honest, they say, I'm not sure, and so you have the pleasure of interacting, I mean, over the years, because uh, you figure out who they are, over the years, you, you know, you have a chance to talk to these people who are super duper experts in some particular area where you need some assistance, and it was fun. Wow, Dad, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on the podcast to talk about your career and about medicine. And as you know, we're we're doing this back to back, and we're going to talk about something more specific uh, to neurology uh, in terms of cognitive decline. But how's how's it going so far with your first podcasting experience? You're you're you seem uh, to be a whiz at it. Uh... It doesn't, uh, so far, uh, I have no regrets. <laughs> As you said, if, if you come now and tell me something I did terribly wrong, maybe I'll have a regret. But I have no regrets. I enjoy, I enjoy talking to you. Oh, so therefore. That's sweet. Uh, well, I enjoy talking to you too. This is, this is, this is the, uh, these are very long conversations. Your phone conversations tend to be like in the three minute range or less. Well, that's I'm me. not, uh, what, what's that old thing? I don't give good phone. I don't, you know, <laughs> because, you know, I think uh, really a lot of the things that I'm just not a phone guy, but this is different because, you know, we're, it, it's like uh, we're talking about something very specific where I may have some knowledge, but, you know, talking about, you know, what did you do? What do you have for dinner last night? I'm not very interested in the other. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's there are some ways in which we're quite similar. I agree. Excellent. I agree. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan. Paid sponsors of the podcast are not involved in the creation of the podcast or any of the content. Support for our sponsors should not be interpreted as medical advice from the podcast, the host, or the guests.